we are looking from heaven. And the things we see there are unspeakably rich and amazing. That's why the word rich continues to come up over and over and over again, redundantly, because it is so different. So let's turn to Ephesians chapter 2 as we continue on in our tour of heaven. It is so different than what we see from earth's perspective. So starting in verse 1, and we'll read to verse 7. And you who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in times past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace you are saved, and has raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. Lord, we ask that you'd bless us this morning and give us wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of you to see from heaven, to see as you see, and to be changed by that. In Jesus' name, amen. Have your eyes ever played tricks on you before? (laughs) We call those optical illusions. When your eyes play tricks on you, Webster defines an illusion as a deceivable or a deceptive appearance. So you see something and you perceive it to be one thing, and then you find out that in reality it's something else. So it seems to be one thing, but in reality it's something else. It's an illusion. Uh, Sean showed us a few weeks ago this video on YouTube, and it starts out fairly normal. You see a man, and he's wiping down his beautiful Ferrari. So he's got this really nice red sports car, this Ferrari, and he's wiping it down. Nothing looks strange. And then all of a sudden, this humongous hand reaches down out of heaven, picks up the Ferrari, and lifts it up, and the guy is shocked. And then you realize, oh, it's only a little miniature Ferrari, but it was really close to the camera, and he was standing a distance away so that it looked like he was <laughs> wiping his Ferrari. But really, he wasn't even close to it. It was an optical illusion. So it, it appeared to be one thing, and then it turned out to be another thing. In New Brunswick, we have this place that sometimes tourists go called Magnetic Hill. Magnetic Hill. So if you ever go to New Brunswick, you can visit Magnetic Hill. Actually, I'm kind of going to spoil it for you right now because you're not supposed to tell anybody. But what happens is you take your car and you drive it to this hill. They have this little area. And um, it's like it's on a slope. And so you, they tell you, okay, drive down the hill till you get to the bottom of the hill, then put the car in neutral. And so... What you do is you drive down the hill, and when you get to the bottom of the hill, you put the car in neutral, and all of a sudden, the car in neutral starts going up the hill backwards. (laughs) It goes up the hill backwards. 
And as you're going back, you're like, whoa, what's going on? You know, because you're not braking, you're not pushing the gas. It's just going up. Actually, I'm not, maybe I shouldn't even tell you how that works. But, well, I'll tell you. <laughs> it's an illusion because actually you don't realize it, but at the bottom it goes up a little bit, and it's just enough of a slope to push you all the way back up the hill. But your eyes, you can't really tell. You can't really tell that at the bottom it goes up again. It's, it's an illusion. And so there's enough gravity and enough force that when you come down, it pulls you all the way up. Don't believe me? Visit Magnetic Hill in New Brunswick. <laughs> okay? So there's perception and then there's reality. Now, sometimes an illusion can be a deadly thing. So sometimes it's fun and it's funny, and sometimes it can be a deadly thing. My dad would always tell us a story of a fellow worker of his. My dad worked at a paint shop at the university, and there was this fellow worker who was an alcoholic. And uh, the doctors told him, your liver is kaput, or something inside you is, is completely destroyed. But he was in complete denial about it. And so they'd ask him at work, so, you know, what did the doctor say? And he's like, oh, nothing wrong with me, he'd say. And my dad, that's how he said, nothing wrong with me. That's how he would say to my dad, as my dad would say that to us. And he'd tell us that this guy, he had, his perception was that nothing was wrong. He had convinced himself nothing was wrong with him. He did not believe anything was wrong with him, and he convinced himself there was nothing wrong with him. And so he'd always say, nothing wrong with me. And then he died, actually. He died young. And my dad would share that as a story, as a lesson, that even when you think you're okay, you can delude yourself and it can be deadly when God says you're not. Here in Ephesians chapter 2, we have God's true estimate of man. Now, it's not popular at all. This is reality, but most people live in unreality. They perceive differently than the way God perceives. So we're in heaven. We just looked at Christ in heaven, seated at the right hand of God. And now our attention is turned to see man, to see mankind, and to see your past. He's, he's showing the Ephesians what you were from heaven's perspective and what those who are without Christ, Christless humanity, what they are without Christ, God's true estimate of man. And it's not pretty at all. Paul goes into this in Romans 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3. Here it's in shortened form, and I think it's even more intense here, actually, than even in Romans. In Romans, he's building the case that everyone has broken the law and no one's righteous. But here he looks from heaven. You could get Romans 1, 2, and 3 from an earthly perspective. You could see, okay, no one's perfect, everyone's sinning, we're all under judgment. You can get that from an earthly perspective. Ephesians looks at it from heaven. It's much more ugly than you think. Yes, you've broken the law, but there's things even going on because of that in the heavenlies, as we're going to see. John Stott, you may be familiar with him. He was a, was a preacher in London. He said this, that this passage here in Ephesians chapter 2, it plums the depths of pessimism about man and rises to the heights of optimism about God. So people think because Christians preach that men are sinful and lost and here dead, because Christians have such a pessimistic view of man, unlike any other view, 
The Christians, and we'll say it, have the lowest and worst view of man you could possibly have. People say, well, therefore, Christianity is a pessimistic religion. It would be better to not believe in Christianity than to think well of people. We can progress, and everyone's essentially good. This is the popular view of man. We're all essentially good. We're progressing. We can be optimistic about man. And Christianity just hinders that. It's pessimistic. But in truth, Christianity is actually optimistic, but their optimism is found in God. It's not found in man. If your optimism is found in man then we have much reason to be pessimistic. (laughs) But Christianity is optimistic, but because it's rooted in God and not in man, because in truth, the reality about man is the worst it could be. You see here that this is one illusion you can't afford to be fooled by. That the consequences of being fooled by this one is eternal. It's deadly. So verse 1, Paul begins by saying this, And you who were dead in trespasses and sins. He turns their attention to themselves or the way they were. To understand and appreciate who you are in Christ, you need to understand and appreciate what you were without Christ. Did you know that every Christian has a B.C. and an A.D.? A before Christ and an anno domini. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But every Christian has a before Christ, a time in your life when you were without Christ. Remember Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12? You were without Christ, you were without God if you were without Christ, and you were without hope. Without Christ, without God, and without hope. But when you become a Christian, as we say A.D., anno domini is the, is the expression there. It means the year of our Lord, or the year of the Lord. It's now, if you become a Christian... You're now in a, in a time in your life where the Lord is reigning in your life. We'll look at that in just a moment. And you, he turns the attention to them. And this is what he says. This is how God sees man without Christ. The description the Bible uses is dead. The horrid description the Bible uses of men is dead. Now, that's the worst thing that we could possibly say. That's the most severe thing that could be said. You can't say anything worse than dead. When the Bible says dead, it's saying not that just man is sick or bad. It's saying he's the worst he could possibly be. Medically speaking, dead is the worst, isn't it? (laughs) Essentially, you only have three options. Traditionally, there's only been three options. You can look at man. You can either say man is healthy... You can say man is sick, or you can say man is dead. Healthy being the best, sick being the middle, dead being the worst. The Bible says dead. What does it mean when it says dead? What does it mean when it says sick and healthy, or when we say a man is sick or a man is healthy? So we come to people who are, more, who are atheistic. They say, ah, yeah, man is healthy. There's nothing wrong with man. He doesn't need to be saved. There is no such thing as sin. How many of you have ever talked to someone who said, there's no such thing as sin? That's an old-fashioned concept. There is no such thing as sin. Man doesn't need to be saved. Man is fine. Man is healthy. Have you ever talked to somebody like that? That's one view of man. 
second view of man, sometimes it can seem good, it can seem Christian, but that man is sick. So people who say man is sick are usually religious people. And they say, yes, something is definitely wrong with man, and man does need to be saved, and there is such a thing as sickness or as sin. But man is able to save themselves. They need to be saved, and they're able to save themselves. There is sin, but they can put sin away. They're sick, but they can get better. They've got the power to get better. They're not completely hopeless in and of themselves. This is a, the, the typical religious view of man. Something's wrong. Our religion can offer good advice for them to heal themselves and fix themselves and save themselves. So you've got the atheist said man doesn't need to be saved. You've got the religious person that says man can save himself. And whatever way might be a pseudo-Christian religion that says man can save himself through Jesus. That's just as wrong. And the last view here in the Bible, man is dead. Man needs to be saved and cannot save himself. Sin is real. Man is a sinner. And nothing can be done about him in and of himself. He's dead. It's the most hopeless of the views when you look at just yourself. So the thing to see here is that it could not be said any worse. You're dead. And what you need then is a resurrection. Something radical. If you've got a radical problem, you need a radical solution. And here's a radical problem. You're dead. So a radical solution is you need to be resurrected. No band-aid's going to work on this one. You don't need any reformation. You need resurrection. So what is it to be dead in sins? Now this is what we're going to look at this morning. Because the following verses, 2 and 3, explain the nature of being dead in trespasses and sins. So what is this? And I see three factors here. Three factors of being dead in trespasses and sins. The first factor is your position. The second factor is your condition in that position. And the third factor is the ramification or the consequence of being in that position. Now he's carrying on from what we looked at last week. Do you remember when we talked about how Jesus was raised from the dead? What do we say about that? What is that death? What, do we just briefly run, run over that and say, he was raised from the dead, he was physically dead, and then he was resurrected? Or is there more to it than that? When someone is dead, what is involved there? What's involved there is sin, law, and Satan. Study these things. You connect them all. Whenever you read death, do you bring with that word sin? Or are you just thinking physically dead? Or do you bring with it dead because of sin? And when you read sin, do you bring with that sin because of law? So when you read death, you also read law. Do you also bring with that Satan? Is it any wonder that the next thing that we read here is Satan and the principalities and the authorities and the powers. So he says, you're dead if you're without Christ. And then he starts talking about the powers and the principalities and Satan. That's a horrid thought, isn't it? You were dead, why? In trespasses and sins. He doesn't use the word law there, but it's there. And because it's there, you've got Satan and you've got the principalities and you've got the powers. 
This is what it says. In times past, you walked according to the course of this world. You walked according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience. So you were under his control. You were in his domain. You were dead in sins and in his domain. He was your ruler. He was your master. And he was controlling you because you were a lawbreaker. And because you were a lawbreaker, he had all the rights to you. And because you're a lawbreaker, we don't seem to understand this, but you're actually controlled by this spirit. This spirit is controlled by the prince of the power of the air, who's Satan. In Jewish uh, writings, the air, they believed that was where the spirits dwelt. Like they, they thought that they saw the Satan and the angelic beings having, they moved about in the firmament. This is Satan, the prince of the power of the air. But there's one word I want you to notice here that you can't really see, at least in the King James Bible, because it's not translated correctly. But where it says the course, according to the course of this world, the word there is aeon or age. So he says here, you walked according to the age. And that age is ruled by the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that works in the children of disobedience. The age. This idea of the ages was in Paul's mind. He was aware of the ages. We read it last week, and I didn't make any comments about it, but look at verse 21 real briefly, where it says, Jesus is far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this aeon, but also in that which is to come. So he says there's this age, and there's the age which is to come. This is a common expression, again, the reason I bring this up, how I always refer to the rabbis and the Jews, is because Paul himself was Jewish and he was a rabbi and he used the same expressions they did. But this expression, the, this age and the age to come, was also a Jewish expression they used. And what it meant was the age to come was the messianic age, when, when the Messiah would come. When the Messiah would come and bring the new age, the blessed age of the Messiah and his reign and his rule. So this age would be the age without Messiah, the age to come would be the age where Messiah comes, his messianic reign. The Jews believed in this. They looked forward to this. Now, I can't go through all over scripture, but there's multiple scriptures that refer to the fact that this age is ruled by Satan. Do you, can you re remember any scriptures like that? Can you think of any? Or the fact that Satan rules this world? Jesus, in the Gospel of John, if you read it, multiple times refers to the prince of this world, the one who rules this world and who rules this age. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 4, Paul says, Jesus gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil aeon, age. How does he deliver us? By giving himself for us by freeing us from our sins and the law and delivers us from the power of darkness. Paul was sent to preach the gospel, the forgiveness of sins, to turn men from the power of darkness to light. Colossians, you've been taken out of the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of light. So while this age is ruled by Satan, if you're a believer, you've been redeemed from it, even though you're in it. This world and this age is ruled by Satan. But if you're a believer, you've been delivered from this present evil age. 
How many of you have ever seen the movie The Lion King? <laughs> now we're talking about kingdoms here, okay? As a matter of fact, in our Bibles, I mentioned this once before, but the word principality and the word prince are related. In the Greek, they're related as well. The word prince here in the Greek is archon, and the word principality is arche. They're related. One being the ruler or the prince, and the other being his principality or his kingdom. So what we have in view here is Satan and his kingdom. We have Satan and his principality. And at one time, because you were dead in your sins, you were ruled by Satan and you were a part of his principality. Now in The Lion King, do you remember when, um, what's the bad lion's name? Scar? Scar becomes the king, doesn't he? And he rules now over the land. And what happens to the land? Desolation, right? The king rules, an evil king rules, and the land becomes desolate. All the green of the land goes away. Everything becomes dry and barren. All the lions and the animals are all really depressed. And they're really angry with one another and they're fighting with each other. Everything beforehand, which looked beautiful, and there's rainbows, and there's beautiful streams, and the animals are playful with one another. Because he took the throne, everything took on that character. So the kingdom takes on the character of the king. And then when Simba comes and ousts Scar, he becomes the king, and everything takes on that character again of beautiful and green and lush and joyful again. Because... Satan reigns in his kingdom. The kingdom takes on his character. In verse 3, it's described, we all had our conversation in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Now, bear in mind, he says here, we all. That means Jews and Gentiles. Everybody. Now, I know that when we read this, sometimes we just think, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Oh yeah, those people who just throw themselves into lewdness. They're just living lewd lives, fulfilling their own desires, their sinful desires, and that's the people Paul's referring to here. But actually, he's referring to everybody, Jews and Gentiles, and himself included. So Paul's saying, before I was in Christ, this is what I was doing. I was fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Now, was Paul throwing himself into lewdness? No, he wasn't. So as you read this, you can't just assume, oh yeah, just someone who's just completely reckless in sin. But this includes even the religious, even the religious that looks really good. So what is the desires of the flesh? If it's not just simply, I want to get drunk, I want to fornicate, I want to eat myself sick. (laughs) If it's not that, what is the desires of the flesh? What's that, Wallace? Self-motive, sure. What's that? Selfishness, yes. It's what Satan had when he wanted to be king and God. It's looking away from God and his rule and his strength and his power and looking to yourself and who you are and what you do and your power and what you can accomplish and what you can, what, everything you can get from all that glory. And what happens, do you think, when we live like that? Does our lives just become this lush spring 
or does it become a barren wasteland? What do you think happens when we live according to that, our own flesh, our own desires? Yeah. Right. The truth is you're dead. Yes, Carolyn. Definitely, yes. But the thing to notice is that it can take on a religious character, right? It's the same desire, just it's a selfish desire for glory, and it's looking at yourself and what you can do and what you can accomplish. And it may look really religious and really good. But the truth is you're actually dead. Isn't it amazing that the truth is they're dead in trespasses and sins, but most people don't even know that? Even though they're being controlled by the spirit of disobedience, and their king is Satan, and everything is really desolate, they think everything is all right, don't they? They're completely in in an illusion, absolutely. Satan's kingdom is characterized by broken law, sin, and death. But Christ's kingdom is characterized by grace, righteousness, and life. Just the opposite. So the thing to see here is that your position is dead, you're in Satan's kingdom. That's your position. I mean, you're without Christ, you're in his rule. Your condition is according to that and according to him. You're fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind and you're desolate because of it. And you don't know true love. You're ruled, you're in this kingdom and you're living according to that kingdom. That's your condition. We walked according to the age That's the phrase I want you to take away from this, the most important one. When you were dead in sins, you walked according to what? The kingdom of Christ? You walked according to this age, the age of Satan and his rule. You walked according to that age. What are the ramifications? What's the consequence in the end? Simply put, at the end, you were by nature a child of wrath. Satan's kingdom is judged. Satan's kingdom is on a timer. And if you're a part of that kingdom, if you belong to him, you are by nature a child of wrath. That's God's wrath. Orge, that's his righteous wrath that's coming against his broken law. That's coming against all those who would break his law and rebel against him and set themselves up against him. The children of disobedience are also the children of wrath. Not a pretty picture of man, is it? Dead means you need to be saved and you can't save yourself. You need to be saved from the wrath of God because you belong to this kingdom. But because you belong to this kingdom, you can't save yourself. You have broken the law. Satan does rule you. And you cannot walk away from that. But... Aren't you glad there's a but? What if there was no but? There'd be no hope. I'm so glad there's a but. You know that Martin Lloyd-Jones says, but God, in verse 4, it's the whole gospel in a nutshell. This one author said, this guy named Solomon, he was a Greek scholar, he said, the God who is wroth with sin is the God of grace. Aren't you glad God is a God of grace? and a God of mercy, and a God of love, 
and a God who steps in and says, but (laughs) aren't you glad that this is God? Aren't you glad that God isn't just just? And if he were just just, that would not be wrong. God, if all he were was just, and this was the condition of man, rebellious, join the rebellion of Satan, under that dominion, children of wrath, and he's just and he's good and he just puts them all away and punishes them in his wrath, he'd be a good king. But aren't you glad he's a God of grace? Aren't you glad that in the ages to come, we'll be praising God for his grace and not just for his justice, which we will also praise him for? His purpose in all of this is the praise of the glory of his grace in the ages to come, it says. But God, it doesn't say, but Eli, seeing the rebellion, decided to rebel against Satan and join the kingdom of light and obey the Lord. It doesn't say that, does it? Because I was dead, I couldn't have done that. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he loved us. God loved us. God loved Wallace when he was dead in trespasses and sins. God loved Leon when he was dead in trespasses and sins. And because he loved them, he was rich in mercy toward them. For even when we were dead in sins, he quickened us together with Christ. By grace are ye saved. It's by grace we're saved because it's when we were dead in trespasses and sins that he made us alive. Now there's many people here in Utah that teach that God will save you after you get out of your trespasses and sins. As a matter of fact, they will tell you a verse of theirs that says, God cannot save you in your sins. Remember that? God cannot save you in your sins. Well, the Bible says he can, and if he can't, then we're all doomed, and there's no hope. He's not waiting for a dead man to come out of the tomb. He goes to the tomb, and he says, come forth. Even when we were dead in sins, he quickened us, and that's why it's grace. Because he's not waiting for when you get out of your sins, but when you were in that dominion, helpless and lost and dead, that's when he quickened you by grace. Now, do you remember when we talked about Jesus' resurrection? He wasn't just resurrected, but he was also exalted. And how the two go together, but sometimes we only emphasize the fact that he was resurrected and it proved that the cross worked. But the fact is that Paul is painting a parallel from the thing that he just said about Christ. He says, Jesus was raised from the dead because he went there on our behalf. He entered the kingdom of darkness. He paid the price. He bore the wrath. And he rose from the dead, having put away sin. He rose from that domain. And he is now exalted at the right hand of God, far above the domain or the principality of this evil one. And because he's far above it, he's got the final say. Paul says here, you weren't just resurrected. You weren't just raised from being dead in sins. You were also set with Christ far above principalities and powers, meaning you weren't just saved from that kingdom, you were set far above that kingdom and it cannot touch you anymore. Your new position in Christ, where once you were dead in sins, now you're alive in Christ. You're alive in righteousness. You're alive and you're exalted with Christ at God's right hand. You're not under the dominion of Satan anymore. 
you can't sin anymore. You can't break the law anymore. You're not under obligation to the law anymore. You're not under obligation to death anymore. You can't die anymore. That sounds strange, but that's the words of Jesus. You'll never die. Didn't he say that? So the thing to see here is that you're not only resurrected, but you're also sitting with Christ who reigns. This is what the meaning is in plain English. You're not only forgiven, you're now a part of the kingdom of God. You're now a part of the kingdom of Christ. And the character of that kingdom, righteousness, life, grace. If you see that you're not only forgiven, but you're also seated at Christ, if you see these things, that character is to be born in you, is going to be born in you also. So as you were not only guilty, but you were also ruled by the Spirit, you also see that I'm not only forgiven, but I'm also ruled by Christ and His Spirit of grace. So when Satan comes and says to you, you're still mine, and you still have to do my desires, you can point him to Christ and the blood of Christ. You can say, no, I'm not yours anymore. I'm Christ's, and I do his desires. I'm not a part of your kingdom. I'm a part of Christ's kingdom. And though this age is yours, I'm not of this world. Though this earth right now is ruled by you, I'm not a part of this. I'm not, I don't even belong to this age. I belong to the age which is to come. You see, Satan's kingdom still rules this age, but we who have been saved have been delivered from his dominion and are under the dominion of Christ and his kingdom which is to come. Meaning we actually believe as Christians Jesus is going to come and rule here. But that doesn't mean that we're not a part of that age right now. That doesn't mean that we're not a part of that kingdom right now. That doesn't mean that we're a part of Satan's kingdom just because we live here. We belong to him and we're part of that age to come. This is the question. Do we walk according to the age that we belong in? Do we live by grace? Or do we believe Satan's lies that we have to live according to his rules? You're still under the law, the broken law. What age do you walk by? Do you walk according to this age or the age to come? Which one do you belong to? Am I making any sense this morning? Does this make sense? That there is an age to come, which is that messianic age when Jesus comes back. But currently, right now, we belong to it and we walk according to it. And we shine as bright lights in this dark world. But one day, this world won't be dark. It'll be bright. And in verse 7, notice this amazing thing. In the ages to come. In the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. I noticed that the word exceeding there is in the Greek hyperbalo, or where we get the word hyperbole. What is hyperbole? Overstating, right? Saying beyond, going beyond. I caught a fish this big. It's hyperbole. When really it was only like this. Do you realize what this is saying? You can't exaggerate God's grace. You can't exaggerate and say, it was this big, because it's hyperbole. It goes even beyond what you could say. His grace is beyond what we can even articulate and describe. It is hyperbole. God wants to show the hyperbole of his grace. And you can't describe it. It's, it goes beyond whatever you can say. Now, it's righteous grace. 
It's not something that it isn't. We're not going to say he just is lenient. But it's actually righteous grace, and you can't, dis- you can't exaggerate it. He actually forgives you of all your sins. He actually doesn't hold your sins against you. No, that's way too gracious. No, it's, that is. It's, it's even more. I'm not even doing it justice to describe it. Yes? Well, there's a parallel verse in Colossians. As a matter of fact, I think this is the exact one. Yes, look at chapter 2, verse 13. Notice this. A parallel verse in Colossians. And notice what it says. 2.13. It says this, And you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, has he quickened together with him, and here's the parallel to that. He's quickened you together with him, having forgiven you of all trespasses or sins. All. Everything. He's forgiven you of all your sin. I ask people that on campus. Are you forgiven of all your sins? And he goes, "Uh, well, the ones that I've repented of. (laughs) Because... They can't say all, but we can because the forgiveness of our sins is rooted in the death of Christ and not in our obedience or confession or anything like that. Jesus died for how many of your sins? Even your future ones? So if you're trusting in him, then you're forgiven of all your sins. And if you're forgiven of all your sins, you are freed from the law, sin, and death. And the thing is, is that not only are you forgiven, you're exalted, you're, you're living in this new kingdom. You were a child of wrath, now you're a child of God. You've been adopted. Out of what kind of an orphanage? You know, what was the orphanage that you were in? A place that was way worse than those ones you see on Oliver Twist. What a glorious thing. And it's all because God was rich in mercy because he loved us. We were children of wrath, and we deserve that but we are now children of God, something we don't even deserve. I was just just going back again in closing here. I would talk about how this is so rich. Just remember the cert, like what we've looked at already. This is, a, this is what Ephesians is all about. You've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ in the heavenly places. You've been chosen. You've been adopted. You're holy and blameless before him. You have redemption through his blood. You have the forgiveness of sins. It's according to the abundant, limitless wealth of his grace. You're in the family of God. You have an inheritance. God is sovereign, working all things to the praise of the glory of His grace. You've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. It's a guarantee for your redemption in the future. This is way rich, you know. And what we were was the opposite. Dead in trespasses and sins, controlled by the spirit and principality of the air, taking on the character of that kingdom, and we're by nature children of wrath. But God loved us and was rich in mercy quickened us together when we were in sins, forgave us of all of our trespasses, and now we sit with Christ in the heavenlies, blessed with every spiritual blessing as his children in his kingdom. What we need now is to pray for one another to see that so that we could bear the character of that kingdom. Grace, not law. Righteousness, not sin. Life, not death. And what's the end of it all? The praise of the glory of His grace. And it's, 
hyperbole. You can't exaggerate it. Isn't that amazing? I, I hope you just catch the drift. Just the drift of this. Now, lastly, I'll just close with this. Let's not walk with a false perception. So when we look at the lost, and it's so easy to do this, we see someone who doesn't believe in Christ and they're without Christ, we can be fooled to think everything's okay, right? We can just look at them in their nice suit or in their nice new haircut and in their nice deeds that they do, and we can just think, ah, like, maybe they are okay. Maybe they are going to go to heaven. Maybe they are a good person. But the Bible's description of them is they're dead. And he couldn't say anything worse than that. They're dead. They're in the kingdom of darkness. They're fulfilling the lusts of the flesh. And they're children of wrath. And so weren't we all. Let's see from heaven's perspective and not see an illusion when we look at the lost. But also, when we look at one another, when we look at each other, fellow believers, brothers and sisters, let's also not see an illusion and say, well, because of their bad haircut or their, their sin that day, their bad deed, oh, they're, they're still sinners. Oh, I need to judge them because they're not keeping the commandments. Oh, they're obviously not going to go to heaven unless they shape up. Or do we see from heaven's perspective, wow, they're wearing white, shining garments. They are seated at the right hand of God in Jesus Christ. They've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. They've received the forgiveness of all of their sins. And I'm one with them. So let's not see the lost from earth's perspective and let's not see each other from earth's perspective but from heaven's perspective. A look at man from heaven's perspective. And that'll change things, won't it? So let's pray.